Hello and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I am David Bax. And thank you for listening. David. Yeah. How you doing? I'm in a great mood. Great mood? Uh, why is that? I, I feel like I've done something with my day. Okay. And I'll tell you why. Not, right. not just because I wrote a couple of reviews for the website, which always makes me feel uh, like I've accomplished something whenever I <laughs> write something for the website. I wrote two reviews in the last few days, and I was just like, well, it was mostly like, all right, done. <laughs> thank God. <laughs> But no, um, we're recording a little later than usual. You had a, a prior engagement, so mm-hmm. we started about an hour and a half after after we would usually start. So I used that time, went home, and I used that time to make homemade pasta from scratch. It's at home drying. The, the, the noodles that I cut are at home drying right now. Uh, I, 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 feel, I feel great. Well, and you mentioned this, you mentioned this before the show. Uh-huh. You've never had homemade pasta. No. Let me ask you this. Uh-huh. Tomorrow, when the noodles are dry, which, by the way, that's a time investment that I just don't... Un- okay, that's fine. It doesn't take... Actually, it didn't take me that long to make them. It just takes a long time for it to dry. Right. It's like, oh, I'm going to make my own pasta because I'm in the mood... I think I'll be in the mood for pasta tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, so it's, it's like a prediction. But um, tomorrow, when you eat this pasta, if it's not good, will your sense of accomplishment... Will the sense of accomplishment that you feel now will it go? Will it dissipate? Oh, it will be. It will not dissipate. It will, it will be obliterated. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. All right. Here's the thing. I lately, because of the diet that you and I were on, congratulations to both of us for completing Indeed. our diet. Uh, How, uh, you know what? How much weight did you lose? Uh, about eleven pounds. Eight pounds. All right. I'll take it. Um. So, uh, part of that, I, I was I was cooking more, mm, and I. Yeah. I feel great about cooking, following recipes, doing stuff, but every time something doesn't turn out right. I made I made a stew uh a few weeks ago that was great until I took a bite and realized that a piece of the like beef neck bone that I had used to make that when I cut the chunks, I had made it into the stew and I bit down a piece of the bone and I didn't want to finish the stew. I was oh. Like, I was like, "Oh, fuck this. I'm I'm yeah. worthless. I'm ordering a pizza." <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> Yeah, it's. I'll just become a fatty again because that's all I deserve. Um, no, absolutely. That's. I do enjoy cooking, certainly when it turns out well. And who who enjoys cooking bad food? Like that's ridiculous. But um, aside from the British, watch out. Um, but uh, that's for one person, and it's just a friend of mine who loves Britain, and I constantly call him a traitor. So uh, it's you. Would, you would call a person like that an Anglophile. I suppose, but I like calling him a, a traitor. I, I think I like, he can be both. Oh, there's, I have to assume you are. But, uh, but yeah, there is that sense of accomplishment. But when it turns out bad, I immediately start calculating, like, how much fucking time did that take? <laughs> like, when it's good, it's like, it was worth it. It's all worth it. Uh-huh. But then the minute I take a bite and it's like, and the chicken's way too dry or whatever it is, yeah. it's just like, oh. This is bullshit. Because now I gotta throw this away and clean the dishes, and I not, and I all on an empty stomach. <laughs> yeah, because I'm not eating this. Who wants to taste failure for the next twenty minutes? Uh, I, I I did end up rallying and finishing the stew, and it was good. Okay, uh, but I, was, I just had that moment of just <sighs> wanting to throw my hands in the air and throw the stew and the crock pot out the window. <laughs> 
<laughs> I do like the the extreme reaction to things. I don't know if I've ever told this story on the show, but you know it. Okay. When I was a kid, I was uh, I, I enjoyed Kool Aid. Uh huh. And I had a pitcher that was not transparent, as pitchers so often are. Right. It was a uh, it was a blue plastic pitcher, and I was pouring myself some Kool Aid. Did it have like a white lid? White lid. I can picture. And you, it. I and I you twist it. Yeah, I know the type. Yeah. And uh, so I was pouring. Expecting purple, because uh-huh. that's usually what I would have. Uh-huh. Out comes red. Uh-huh. Now I don't mind red at all. I like it. It's fine. But because I was, was a that a fruit punch? It was a fruit punch. Okay. There's also cherry, but this was yes. You're right, fruit punch. So as, but because I was expecting purple, uh-huh. I reacted as though I had poured a snake out <laughs> because. I, I said, what the hell? And I threw the... I didn't throw the glass because it was, you know, crystal. But um, but I I threw the... the Like, angrily threw the, uh, the Kool-Aid in the... Not the pitcher, but oh, like okay. the Kool-Aid in the glass. I like threw it into the sink, but like threw it basically horizontally. So it just splashed against the wall and stuff. And then I just sat there being like, what is wrong with you? It was Kool-Aid that you like... Why uh-huh. did you react like that? And it's just that kind of extreme, like something, the smallest thing in the world didn't go my way. <laughs> Screw you, world. Now, I want it for the listeners, like I said, like you said, I know that I'd heard that story before, but I want to make sure the listeners know that I, I, I know you and your family, Tyler is not white trash. I know when you heard that he was drinking Kool-Aid out of crystal, you thought that might be a little white trash. Is it crystal or is it glass? Like, which one is better? I think crystal is better. Okay, there's probably just glass then. Okay, okay. We had a. Uh, we'll get to the show in a second. Um, is is that a? We got a new fridge when I was in uh, high school. My family and this thing would spit out ice. It was one that had an ice maker in the door. Mm-hmm. It would spit out ice cubes so fast that I it literally broke like three glasses before I started like figuring out how to how to do it without break. I just put a glass in there and be like and I'd pull it away and there'd be like a huge like chunk of the glass would fall out. What were you doing wrong? I, I wasn't doing anything. I had just had to learn how to caress the uh, the fridge. All right. All right. You got to love that ice right out, right out of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, Is that a white trash thing, the crystal thing? I've, I've I never just heard thought the that. idea of drinking Kool-Aid out of crystal seems kind of white trash. That is, yes. Yeah. Like, All right. Like someone... In someone in your family like uh, spent money they probably didn't have on crystal, but you guys don't have the means to save it just for nice occasions, so it's right. just used for orange yeah. juice and Kool Aid and, and whatnot. We want to use it, you know, at least once before we have to sell it because <laughs> yeah. the car needs new tires. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, Let's talk about something movie related. Okay. I have no idea. I know you had something you wanted to talk about that's going to lead us into our main topic. Yes. Uh, let's get to it. Okay. Uh, so you notice I didn't, I didn't say let's get into it because we're not there yet. Indeed. Let's get to the pre-topic. So I was watching. Uh, there's a. I don't. I wish I had the, the URL uh, in front of me, but I think it's just like org or I don't remember. But you can look it up. Um, there's a website that is very valiantly. Uh, devoted to posting old episodes, entire episodes of Siskel and Ebert. And I will watch it from time to time. And it's a lot of fun for me because in retrospect, you know that both of them loved 
and championed films like Hoop Dreams and mm-hmm. Fargo. Like, you know, you know that now. And it's kind of the same, like, with yourself. Like, there was a time when I had not seen L.A. Confidential mm-hmm. or The Apostle or, like, movies that when I saw them, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. And now they become very much a part of me. But there was a time when they didn't exist and I had not seen them and they weren't a part of me. And so, so to go back and watch the episode where they first talk about Hoop Dreams or, uh, or Fargo or something like that. Um, is really exciting. I enjoy that. You were also talking about the fun of them talking about movies that have sort of been forgotten. Because because there was a coincidence that I had recently watched um, Errol Morris's only non-documentary film, The Dark Wind. Mm -hmm. And I think only days before you you happened to have seen the review of it. Yeah, a film that I had... I mean... I don't remember if they had mentioned uh, Errol Morris. I feel like they would have because, you know, he was, even at the time, a notable documentarian. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I, they did not care for it. And part of me was like, I, I, don't, I don't care. I just, <laughs> I'm fascinated that this movie exists. But, I mean, you say Lou Diamond Phillips, my eyes have glazed over. I See, I like, uh, I like LDP. I don't um, think he's bad, but he is not relevant. The last thing he was in, I believe that was notable was bats uh i don't know if that there was wasn't the, the, he had a series that uh got canceled after a couple episodes but it was called like wolf lake wolf lake that's right yeah. yes okay uh anyway i like him and actually the dark wind is a really really cool movie that ends up devolving into a pretty uh by the numbers hollywood ending type of thing I think he actually was he was a pretty good actor in the right role and when he wasn't in the right role I feel like he could really overplay it. Um mm. like I remember him being encouraged under fire in a in a in a good role but the character has to display like post traumatic stress disorder and that sort of thing and and I think he kind of over overdoes mm. it. But I remember liking him in like Stand and Deliver and and La Bamba. I think he was good in La Bamba. Yeah, but to me he will always be Jose Chavez Chavez from Young Guns and Young Guns too. Oh, indeed. Absolutely. Um, that's neither here nor there. So, one good thing about this website is that it will it will post episodes, but it will also post uh, appearances that they've done on other shows. Um, back when Howard Stern had like a talk show mm-hmm. that was on TV instead of just cameras in his radio studio, uh, they were on there and it's... It is a wonderful thing to behold because that's back when Stern really amped things up because that's what people expected of him. And so he would say these really, really just terrible things because <laughs> um, at the time, Roger Ebert was dating his now wife, Chaz, and Howard Stern could not get enough of the fact that Roger Ebert's dating a black woman. Uh-huh. And he just kept bringing it up and talking about, hey, what kind of what kind of sex games do you play like slave and master? And I'm watching being like, oh my gosh, this is awful. Siskel and Ebert, they both are just, they're both, they're not dumbfounded because they just see right through him. I believe they say he's like a little child <laughs> who just wants people to pay attention to him. Like they, they just, and it's, and it's, uh, it's delightful. But I did see an episode recently. How, how, how do you feel about Howard Stern? Now or just in general, in general? I guess. Whatever. I, I don't care. Um, I saw... It's been a long time, but I saw Private Parts, and I thought it was a pretty good movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, and, and I've, I think I've heard uh, 
the occasional because as you know i've gotten i've become interested in politics uh, over the last <laughs> year and occasionally there will be like a little clip from his show that gets posted somewhere and i listen to it and it's and it's interesting i i sometimes agree with him i sometimes don't i think he has mellowed out over the years and that's mm. pretty great i haven't listened in years my opinion on him my, my opinion on him is that um the hosting a radio show like that is a very specific talent that mm-hmm. he has uh in spades uh i don't need to listen to that <laughs> no question but <laughs> but that does take you're right that does take a very specific talent to remain interesting mm-hmm. and not overplay things and and i think in his early days he felt like he had to do that and i think now he's kind of found uh he's found himself i'd say he probably found himself 12 years ago but um so i saw uh, an episode of Oprah that had been posted from like 1988. Siskel and Ebert were on there. And one of the reasons that I like both of them, but specifically Gene Siskel, specifically him talking, you can't really find his reviews anywhere online. And I feel like that's some kind of crime. <laughs> but because I, I, I always found his taste fascinating because his, you know, his favorite film of all time was Saturday Night Fever. Mm-hmm. I've not seen the film. I don't think it's – it has become a joke, and I probably shouldn't shouldn't be uh, because of everyone just knows the, the white suit and just walking down the street to, uh, you know, the Bee Gees. But, uh, but he loved the movie, and, you know, his favorite movie of 98 was Babe, Pig in the City, you know, yeah. famously. By the way, that thing you're talking about – I know you and I have talked about it before, so I hesitated because I'm not sure if it's come up before. But there are three movies that I think people – of my generation younger don't take seriously <clears throat> before they've seen them because of that reputation. Mm-hmm. It's Rocky, Rocky, Saturday Night Fever, and Planet of the Apes. Yeah. Uh, oh, absolutely. I, I, I think they have this sort of, they just exist as a joke or a cultural reference in, yeah. in some people's minds that I don't think people take the time to actually watch them and consider that they're all three of those are really, really great movies. Well, it's the cultural osmosis thing and the, the problem with sequels and parodies. Don't get me wrong. I like a good parody, and, and airplane parodies, uh, you know, Saturday Night Fever yeah, quite well. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, I think people almost feel as though they it's like I get it, and they're like, no, you don't. Go back and watch Rocky. And, it is not the movie you think it is. Yeah, and I think also people knowing John Travolta was in Greece, maybe they they think Saturday Night Fever is just like a disco Greece. Yeah, it's um, not. No, it's not. It's actually it's great. But um, but and that's what I liked is that Gene Siskel was willing to do his own thing he was willing you know it's and it's that type of confidence and it came through when he would talk about film and on the on the uh, oprah episode that the that was posted he and uh, ebert would give their opinions and oprah would she wouldn't fight them on it but she would be like well what about this and, and her opinions were uh, a little more uh, populist and they would just and they would just have a discussion, and even when the discussion became passionate, it ne- it never became desperate. And I think that's something that separates someone like a Gene Siskel from, I'll be honest, someone like me or mm-hmm. various other online critics. This, you know, anybody who uh, follows my Twitter feed will uh, be able to tell that I have a desperate desire to be taken seriously um, (laughs) in my, in my film uh, critique abilities. But he just, he knows what he likes. 
He knows that he knows what he's talking about. And so he doesn't need to persuade you or convince you. He will make his points. He'll make them again. He'll make them passionately. But even when he and Roger Ebert were, for all intents and purposes, fighting, there is just a, there's just a confidence there that just mystified me. And I do know that at times I can be confident in my opinion. You can be confident in your opinion. That's fine. But the thing that it just got me thinking in maybe too navel gazing of a way, but where, like where do critics and just movie lovers in general, where do they find that confidence when the time comes and they, and they sit down at the table to have a conversation about movies or whatever, where do they find that confidence? Mm -hmm. And that's a question that is asked often with entirely the wrong tone that is asked of them by people, by people who don't like critics, where it's like, where do you get the gall to Uh say this, to put yourself out there? And, uh, and I don't know. So that it's a question that got me thinking. Yeah. Well, um, I, I think the answer is, um, they, you know, there's such a thing as expertise, you know, and I think people who say like, where do you get the gall need to think about whatever thing that they're really interested in that they know a lot about, you know, um, here, here's it. Okay. Uh, I like hockey a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I watch a fair amount of hockey. Um, and I generally keep up with what's going on in the league, in the league, the NHL. Um, but I and, and I, while I even read some like hockey message boards and stuff, I don't mm-hmm. tend to post or uh, contribute to the discussion very much because I know that I'm ca- I'm a I'm a pretty uh, casual um, by comparison mm-hmm. hockey fan. That's um, that's kind of how I have become about politics. I do not mm-hmm. often weigh in on other people's opinions. I will occasionally post something that someone else has written. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's it's to a certain extent the same with um with with music i i am interested in uh you know what's going on in in popular music uh but i don't tend to get into a lot of discussions about it um what i do get into discussions about are movies tv mm-hmm. and comedy yeah because i i think i think it just that confidence just comes from Sitting back and observing the conversation and realizing uh, my level of knowledge and my sophistication in uh, in taste or whatever uh, mm-hmm. is equal to what's going on here. Uh, I am equal to the task. Uh, and so I, I think it's just something that I I just... I just know or feel like, uh, okay, this is a topic I can talk about and mm-hmm. be confident. I can, basically, the reason I don't um, interject in these hockey forums mm-hmm. is because um, I know that uh, inevitably I'll eventually say something that can be disproven by a precedent that I'm not aware of. Uh, and someone is going to take me to school and say, you know, Bobby, or this, or, you know... Uh, Gordy, how that? Um, and uh, uh, so, uh, when when I give my opinion on a film, I am um, 
almost 100% certain that I will be equal to the task of defending that opinion. Mm-hmm. That's where I, I guess that's where I get my confidence. But I do have some of the same problems. Like, um, why does... And this is something I struggle with that, I, that is, I think, connected to this problem. How come sometimes there's a movie that I say don't don't like but don't hate mm-hmm. but then everyone else likes it so i start to feel like i hate it right why am i being a reactionary shouldn't i have the confidence in my opinion to stick with what my opinion was right. and not change it based on other people's opinions yeah. so i'm not saying i'm 100 percent confident the way that a zen master like gene siskel <laughs> was but um uh, i think i'm almost there and that that's where i get it from uh to, to reiterate from uh the from being reasonably certain that I can defend anything that I say. And I think for me, and I would venture to say, and this is just off the top of my head, I I do think that you come off as more confident. I think you probably are more confident than I am. And I don't, and that could sound like an insult. I don't mean, I didn't say cocky. I said confident. Um, But I know that I do tend to be confident and often it comes from a looking within myself about why did i react this way okay now why did what caused that reaction and then what caused that and basically just going deeper and deeper until you feel i feel like that is as deep as i can that is as deep as i can possibly go as to how why i reacted this way and i feel like if you're willing to really go that deep within yourself and is it still going okay Sorry, everyone. There's a little thing there. Um, for I don't know. Just and the deeper you go, the more you're able to discover about the film because it's like okay, I've gone as deep as I can go. Is the film still there? It isn't. Okay, so it would appear that it did not affect me this deep. Uh, <laughs> but I, it's 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 for me. It's it's about to a certain extent like self examination and. And recognizing that I am not only going by surface. I'm not merely going by, I didn't like it. I don't know why. Or just, or even, even what we talked about. Or it was stupid. I did that, uh, um, I can't remember last week or a couple weeks ago where I made some offhand comment that the movie, that Mike Nichols' closer was dumb. And then I started to move on. And then I made, I don't know if you remember this, I made, the conversation had moved on mm-hmm. and I made us go back and talk about closer because I'm not comfortable with just saying it's dumb because that's what, those people do <laughs> <laughs> dumb people dumb people um yeah, yeah and and so i think and it's it's another reason i've gotten i haven't necessarily gotten flack for this but people have commented uh, in the past that uh when i say that i don't like to say a movie is boring because even if i don't like the movie or if i'm not invested in the movie it does it does involve that like you know and by the way, when I say like looking within myself, I don't mean like like a deep soul searching, uh-huh. but just understanding like okay, this did this affect me emotionally? Did it, this affect me intellectually? Was it both? Was it purely a visceral thing? You know, that's not that's not like shaking me to my core. Every once in a while, there will be a film that does that. By the way, but uh, but yeah, and so if I'm doing that and trying to understand why I'm not invested in this, um, then. That's not that is not to me boring. Mm-hmm. Even if even if I come 
come out thinking like, okay, I still wasn't invested, and so I could take or leave the movie and the events that just, happen in it. This is getting off topic, but just because you're not bored doesn't mean the movie is not boring. Right, right? but it, I think the movie can be... I think a movie can be boring, but I don't necessarily like to declare it so. Like, you can always say something within it. Within that. Like, why is it not... Why am I not invested? Like, to me, that's what boring is, is you're not invested. But why am I not invested? What is wrong with this character? The movie's still boring. I guess so. I I, I just had this the other night. I saw um, James Watkins' The Woman in Black, Mm -hmm. which has a lot of parts that really work. Um... But yeah, there are parts that don't, and I found my mind going away, and mm-hmm. I, just me starting to think like, all right, what's not what's not clicking here? What, what isn't working? Um, but that, but your mind was working, like yeah, you, but that's you because of thinking, who I am. You weren't thinking. I really want to have some homemade pasta, whatever it is you think uh, that isn't movies or television. Uh, you know, it, you were still engaged, but in a completely different way. Like, to me, bored literally means you want to be elsewhere because this is nothing. You are getting nothing out of it. And I have been bored in other experiences in life, <laughs> but I don't think I'm ever – and that's the thing. I don't look down on people who say that a movie is boring or that they were bored. I don't require that other people not say that. But for me, I have a hard time just designating a film as okay. that. Well, my talk of – the Woman in Black will get us into the main topic okay. here in a way because there's another horror movie. It's not uh, not something we're going to talk about today. Um, do you ever find yourself in the space between when you see a movie and when you have to write the review or, or when you have to talk about it on the podcast or whatever? Um, Second-guessing yourself because of other opinions that you read? Yeah. Yeah. This year, I haven't, I haven't spent a whole lot of time talking about it, um, but early in 2011... Scream 4 was released, um, and I thought it was a lot of fun, and I still do. I mm-hmm. still really like it, but I haven't said so that often or that exuberantly mm-hmm. because so many other people disliked it, people whose opinions I respect and you often agree with, no. that I just like, I don't know if I'm ready to have that conversation. Uh, I feel like I might be wrong. Maybe I was just in a really good mood when I saw it, but I don't think so. I mean, I think I still think I still remember that movie fondly. No. Uh, yeah. Oh, there's a there's a movie that and I mean, people can go and and I might I would have been talking about it on this episode, except that I have a review on the site, so you can find out okay. what I think of it. But there's a movie called Mysteries of Lisbon, mm-hmm. which, to my knowledge, I'm the only person that doesn't like it, <laughs> and so I'm just like. Oh, good Lord. And by the way, it's six hours and foreign. And so my first thought was people are going to think I don't like it because it's six hours and foreign. <laughs> and I was like, no, I liked it for, is it six hours? It might be, you know, it might be. F- I think it's four hours. It cut down from the original six hours because th- it aired on television in, I don't know. I think it's like 4.15 and there's an intermission. Okay. Thank God. But, but it was longer when it aired yeah. in, in Europe. Yeah, I think what I said is I think it would be better at six hours or two. This thing in the middle is not working. <laughs> but like, see that—that's a confidence I do have. I don't think anyone would. I don't think I would question myself on that. But that's the thing is, so many people like it shows up on all these insert like like I subscribe to a film comment and that shows up in their top ten and I'm just like, 
man, these people would hate me. They would really, they would really look down on me. Uh, but what's wrong? What's wrong, Smith? Too long for you? Sorry, not everything can be domestic disturbance. <laughs> which is my constant go-to for a main, a short mainstream yeah, film, by the way. Which you didn't even like that much. No, I liked that movie more than you did. Yeah, but I remember the one thing that you and I agreed on. It was like, well, it's in and out. Yeah, it really uh, it's about 80, no re- 88 minutes, I think. Yeah, much, yeah. but it's much better than eighty-eight minutes, <laughs> which I never saw. But uh, uh, so, so I bring up Scream Four, even though we're not going to talk about it today, because of what we are going to talk about today. Um, this is the first real sort of end of the year, even though it's now February at this point. But we're the the space between December thirty first and the Oscars. Um, you know, we've always used it, and I think if you look at the movies that studios actually release, um, um, studios often kind of, kind of think of it too as a time to reflect on or catch up on the movies from the year. Yeah. And so we've definitely tried to keep that as a theme both on the website and here on the podcast, um, continuing to keep the conversation going about 2011. You know, mm-hmm. we've talked about whether or not it was a good year. We've had top 10 lists from our, our, our bloggers uh, show up on, on the site. Um, and... You know, next week we'll have uh, Graham and Chris from uh, Comedy Film Nerds. Uh, uh, you know, as it has become some something of a yearly, yearly tradition to talk about the Oscar, the Oscar nominations. The week after that, we'll finally uh, do our best of the year, mm-hmm. and then it's the Oscars, and then it's our best uh, supporting performances, and then by by about mid March, that's when movies start getting good again. No, not merely best supporting performances, best individual best, achievement. Uh, yeah, that's what I meant, individual achievement. If you want to focus on that, that's fine. It'll yeah. be a good year for supporting performances. Uh, no, best individual achievement. Um, and then it'll be about mid-March, and we can start thinking in earnest about 2012. I do like this structure, by the way, because it just means like I don't have to think about any topics, except I just I just keep looking at my list. Yeah. And yeah. that's all I got to do. Um, but, I mean, to me, it's also – we're talking about a year's worth of film. To do one episode, we do our top ten and then move on. I don't know. That seems – that seems cheap. We're, we're ta- I mean, let's take a few months to talk about 12 months worth of Not worth to of mention, films. like, in some parts of the country, in fact, I'd say in most parts of the country, a lot of the movies that show up on, on year-end best lists yeah. are just now being uh, arriving there, yeah. if they ever show up at all. Or they're just now arriving on DVD and that sort of thing. Yeah, so, it, one of the films that I'm going to be talking about today hasn't even opened here. I saw it at AFI Fest. Oh, wow. Uh, but it's worth talking about, and that's why that, that's the point today. Today we're going to do, like I said, in two weeks we'll be doing our best of, which will also include our honorable mentions, our um, overrated, underrated, and worst movies, and um, that leaves a lot of space in between. So this was Tyler's idea, and I'd like to make this a bit of a tradition. Uh, movies that we think... We that we want to talk about mm-hmm. from the from from 2011 from the from the year previous uh, that we won't get a chance to on that episode, mm-hmm. um, and we want to talk about these often because maybe we um, disagree with the consent the consensus opinion. Every by the way, there's plenty of movies I'd love to talk about, like uh, like a documentary, a little scene documentary called Exporting Raymond that I actually thought was delightful and I really liked. Uh, I'm not going to be talking about that because, for me, I wanted to stick to when when I don't match up with the consensus. <laughs> well, I, I, did, I did some of that, but also um, some things uh, – I, I did some of that. Also things that I think maybe needed to be talked about more, maybe, mm-hmm. that, that flew under the radar. And then 
uh, at least one movie that just I couldn't ignore. Okay. So uh, I'm not the sure. Fatal what... attraction of movies. Wait, that is a movie. <laughs> uh, this movie will not wouldn't wouldn't would not be ignored. Um, so I think I will start. I'm trying to think uh, the order. I think I'm going to do this kind of scatter shot. So are we into it? What's the deal? Um, let's get into it, shall we? All right. Uh, the the movie that I want to begin with is that movie um, I was talking about that hasn't even opened here yet. I saw it at AFI Fest. It's um, The Kid with the Bike by... I'm mm. oh, sorry, The Kid with a Bike by um, the Dardan brothers who uh, did things you may have seen such as um, The Promise, The Child, The Son, um, and... Uh, uh, Rosetta, which is my the first one I ever saw and remains my favorite of their films. So the Sun is also a uh, uh, powerful, uh, powerful film, um, and it's by their standards, it's not uh, at the upper echelon of their work, um, but uh, you know, a, a subpar Dardan Brothers film is is better than. Most films. Have you seen any of the films that I mentioned? Because they are up your I alley. I saw. Yeah, I know. I saw the. I believe you watched the Sun when we were living in together in Chicago, and I we, walked through, and I. It seemed interesting, and yeah. I sat down. So I think I missed the first. I want to say, forty-five, maybe even the first hour of it. But okay. I, I, it was. Yeah. So That's by, by the way, because I, I got for um, my graduation present, uh, I got a thirty-two-inch TV. Um, which was bigger than anything I'd ever oh, had man. before. I think we had a 27-inch, maybe? No, we had a 21-inch? We had a 19-inch that's currently in my bedroom and oh, is yeah. slowly but surely falling apart. Um, well, yeah, our, the power button was already missing from it. Was it missing from it? I feel like, didn't it fall off when I lent it to you for some yeah, reason? Yeah, my okay. my ex-girlfriend broke it. Um, <laughs> uh, it was an accident. Um, I yeah, I so. got a, th- a 32-inch TV... And the first movie, I mean, I threw in some DVDs to just look at, like, the skydiving scene from Point Break and mm-hmm. look at stuff on this big TV. Um, uh, I now have a 46-inch TV, which is not like a, it's not, you know, it's not a 70-inch 70, 70 screen, but it's I'm puts my 32-inch to I'm screen. I'm content with 46-inch. That's what uh, mine is. Um, but, the, yeah, the first movie I watched in full on my new, brand new TV was The Sun. Um Anyway, uh, the the kid with the bike is um, like most of their films about um, lower middle or lower working class people in in Belgium, um, and this is uh, a kid who is staying at a, I guess, um, I guess it's sort of a government run boarding boarding school. It's not quite an orphanage, but. Because he has a dad, his dad just doesn't want to raise him and doesn't want anything to do with him. So he mm-hmm. just shuttles him off to this sort of like school slash government facility that he just lives at. Um, and then he happens to meet a, a woman, a single woman um, who's a hairdresser who lives nearby in the sort of um, um, I'm not sure what they're called in Belgium. In England, they'd be council estates. Um, uh, and she agrees to take him on weekends to get him out, out of there and and give him a chance at a life and a social life and to see more of the world than just the grounds of this place that he that he lives. And she takes him under her wing, but of course, 
The Darnell brothers are not sentimentalists, really. Mm-hmm. This kid has had a hard life and is, um, you know, a little battle-worn and um, not exactly softer on the edges. Mm-hmm. He makes things difficult, and he basically ends up running in with some, I guess, uh, bad kids who live in the estates and then has this, you know, uh, very patient, patient, almost saintly woman taking care of him, and he's he's got these two influences in his life, and that's what the movie's about. It didn't make my top ten or my honorable mentions because, like I said, it's a lesser work from the Dardan brothers, and it actually does veer into sentimentality a little bit at the end, too, a little too much for me. But it should be coming out; it should be rolling out in the next uh, couple months uh, across the country, and I would definitely recommend checking it out. So, okay, pretty much. Uh, so I, we we limited ourselves to everything's fine. Oh, okay. What Sorry. Are you doing? Sorry, I keep getting distracted by uh, various things like <laughs> flashes on the computer screen. David <laughs> looking up stuff online while we record is a new development, and I'm not used to seeing it. So when I saw <laughs> the inter- the uh, online screen pop up, I'm like, "Where? What happened to the garage band?" <laughs> So um they don't need that much of a peek behind the curtain. Sorry. So uh so David and I decided to limit ourselves to five movies uh that we would talk about this episode and uh four of them are movies I don't like. Um and See, I intentionally picked three that I do like and only two that I don't and I'll stagger them. So the next one will be one I don't like. By the way, I don't hate really any of these movies, but they're movies that I feel like I have a problem with. Uh and then one of them is one that I do like. So maybe I'll save that one for the end, but it might even piss people off. So uh, so I'll start off with The Ides of March. Now, it did not get glowing reviews. It got solid, I'd say Bs. It got Bs, B pluses, three stars, that kind of thing. Uh, and that's fine. But the thing that got me is that I think it's official. That sounds a little big, but... I don't think George Clooney is a solid director. Like Confessions of a Dangerous Mind was a was a good debut. He was borrowing perhaps way too much from Soderbergh yeah. uh, stylistically. Who will come up today? He will. Okay. So, but then Good Night and Good Luck comes out, and that to me was brilliant. The way he, the way it was structured, the things he chose to do with the script when he chose to use uh, actual footage and just and shooting it the way he did in black and white and just it's just and the fact that it is a almost purely intellectual movie there is almost no emotion to that movie and i don't and i say that in a good way like any emotion that you have any emotional response you might have to it has to do with how you intellectually process what's happening and i kind of like that and then leatherheads came out and that was Sort of a throwback to a different type of film. And I never and saw that one. I never did either. But so, and you know what? So I feel bad for for judging it, except based on reviews, it was completely <laughs> forgettable. Um, then Ides of except March. Your whole point today is that you disagree with the review consensus on these movies. So for all you know, you would love knuckle, knuckleheads. Uh, knuckleheads, leatherheads, Le- leatherheads. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I might. I might. Um, but uh, but I think, like, between that and then Ides of March, like,
I, I guess I could talk more about this next week when we talk about the Oscar nominations, but it is a flawed film in many ways. Uh, great performances uh, pretty much all around, and that's fine, but it's nominated for screenplay. That is, that's where the problem is. And that, <laughs> and it absolutely is, it's that kind of self-satisfied feel in high school, I wrote uh, a script called The Model Citizen. I think I read it. I think you read it, and I think I've talked about it on the show. It's It was about politics, because, hey, who doesn't know about politics when they're 17? <laughs> and what I knew was what movies about politics told me. Yeah. I You'd seen City Hall. I saw City Hall and various yeah. others, but City Hall, yes, being the big thing. Um, Is that movie good, City it's Hall? It's okay. I, I've seen it. And I remember liking it, but it's, it's been okay. so long that I don't know if it's good or not. It's pretty sensationalistic. Uh, yeah. And then there was another one that I've talked about on the show called Night Falls on Manhattan, which I like a lot. And it was there are some characters in that that sort of inspired the. What the about True Colors? Well. True Colors is not that good. Okay, I saw that one too. I don't think I liked that, but I remember liking City Hall. City Hall's okay. It's, who, who wrote it? I don't remember. Okay, you got the internet in front of you. I sure do. You you keep talking. I'm gonna look up who wrote City Hall. So, but here's the thing. Now that I'm older, I can look back at uh, the script that I wrote in high school and be like, "Ugh, this is way too broad. Not at all. Not at all specific uh, in the things that I'm talking about. It's 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 all generalities, and I can distance myself from it." Ides of March is like the script I wrote, except more <laughs> swear words. But swear words, in a way, it almost seems like they're trying to prove how adult they are. It's like a script someone wrote in high school, and then they're like, well, we need someone to take this seriously, so we'll, we'll throw in fuck from time to time. <laughs> and By the way, the writers of City Hall, two names you probably don't know, Ken Lipper and Bull Goldman. Okay. Two names you definitely do know. Okay. Paul Schrader and Nicholas Pileggi. Oh, wow. All right. Anyway. But uh, I do like that Paul Schrader. But yeah, and so like, so Ides of March, it's just, it's so, it's, it, it's, it's melodramatic and melodrama is not necessarily bad, but it's that this, uh, we talked before about earnestness. It's this earnest attitude that's almost like, it's almost like it's, they think they're the first ones to say this. They're the uh-huh. first ones to talk about it. It's like, not only are you not the first ones, it's so commonplace. I wrote something like it based on movies that I've seen. <laughs> When I was 17. Yeah. And it's it's just such a... I won't say it's overrated because it wasn't beloved, but it just speaks to that... Just this attitude of like a, of an actor-director who, damn it, he's doing important things! Exclamation point. And it's just like, no, you're really... I know you think you are, but you're really not. And your movie... Good acting. Philip Seymour Hoffman does really great work. George Clooney as an actor does really great work. Ryan Gosling... So they, they created some good characters, but gave them such hackneyed stuff to say, and and it's directed in a way that just really just, everything is just so fucking life and death, <laughs> and like and it's to the point now like after and I again I did not see Leatherheads, but after Good Night and Good Luck, I was like, wow, George Clooney is a solid director. And then Leatherheads is like, okay, well, saw you know, can't win them all, um, which you still, you which I haven't seen, <laughs> but it's based on based on right. reviews and such. Like I didn't see it based on negative reviews, um, 
which will sometimes happen. Who knows? It might be my favorite movie of all time. Uh Wow. Wouldn't that be a turn of events? (laughs) But, uh, but then with Ides of March, I was like, Oh, this, this man, a political movie directed, written and directed by George Clooney. Look at this cast. This is me all over. And then I went and saw, I was like, ugh. <laughs> and, it, it, and it made me sort of lose faith in who George Clooney is as a writer and director. And it made me think of that, that uh, Good Night and Good Luck might have been a fluke. Because, again, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind is fine, but I wouldn't say it. It declares George Clooney as a directorial presence or right. anything like that. So, like, Good Night, Good Luck, I think it's just a great movie on its own, and that's it. <laughs> Ryan Gosling, by the way, I've known who he is now for 10 years. Mm-hmm. Still can't decide if he's a good actor or not. <laughs> well, I think he is. I, I think he's... And he's got as much... He's got as much stuff that I don't like under his belt as stuff that I do. Like, I can definitely point to his performances in The Believer. Mm-hmm. And half Nelson, and he was good in uh, even though, Slaughter Rule. Um, oh yeah, the Slaughter Rule. Yeah, and then um, a movie that was awful, but uh, from this year, Crazy Stupid Love. He's mm. actually quite good in it. Uh, he and Emma Stone uh, should they should be a couple in real life. They have the best chemistry. It's worth seeing almost just for their chemistry. He but is good in Nights also- of March, by the way. Okay. Like. But then there's also things like, I mean, obviously he was young, but like Murder by Numbers, um, the United States of Leland. Mm. Um, I don't know that, you know, he is not the problem that I have right. with Drive. Okay. But I don't know that that can be called a good performance. In in Drive, you mean? Yeah. I think that's the, perf- that's the what, what other performance can you give with that material? Yeah, or with that, dire- I mean, the, the direction seemed suffocating yeah in that movie i don't think anyone gave much of a performance because they couldn't but we'll talk about drive some of the time yeah, yeah. um all right uh i'll go with my next one I'll, I'll go negative now okay um i said we'd talk about uh steven soderbergh um and i want to talk about contagion um i don't know i i guess i'm uh keeping with your theme a little bit against the consensus here mm-hmm. i think people mostly liked it um i did not uh, I thought it was a <clears throat> a bit of a snooze fest, and it just it felt so much like Soderbergh on autopilot. It had all the sort of uh, Soderbergh aesthetic touches, mm-hmm. uh, you know, um, in, in, just in terms of the you know the way that he edits it's edited uh, very well um but you know using the different uh color palettes for different locations and cutting back and forth like in traffic and and you know lots of title cards it's uh it 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 all felt like it felt kind of like a machine moving forward you know uh, and i think Soderbergh is um a strong enough craftsman to do that mm-hmm. it's just that i um wasn't invested in any of the the story um the you know <clears throat> you know what should have been the most most compelling part the actual effect on uh and the effect and the danger that this um virus has on people uh was kind of dealt with perfunctorily you know there were you you saw glimpses of people 
reverting to violence and looting and rioting, but it was so cold and distant that um, it didn't... You, there was no danger in the movie. Even though people mm-hmm. are dying, lots and lots of people are dying. Uh, you know, I hear people, lots, so many people talking about how they left that movie and didn't want to touch anything, didn't and want to wash their hands. It didn't have that effect on me because I, I felt so... I felt so distanced from the movie the whole time. And plus all the deaths, almost all the deaths, I guess, of major characters, which is a great choice, you know, to, I'm not spoiling anything here to say that, um, Gwyneth Paltrow dies very early on. What? (laughs) Um, you know, but the fact that she dies and then we see them, (laughs) have you seen it? No. Okay. Cause then we see, uh, another day they need to do an autopsy to find out more about the virus. They they cut open her head and peel her face down the front of her skull, and it's Gwyneth Paltrow, and it's awesome. I was like, I am on board for this movie now, <laughs> um, because that's a cool thing to do. To and by the way, like ha- having not seen the film, good for Gwyneth Paltrow. Yeah, to be okay with that. Yeah, that's you know, I, I a lot of people don't like her. I don't think I'm a big fan of her either, but that shows. A certain degree of commitment. They're like, all right, so I know you're a big star. Is it okay if we represent your face being peeled off your skull? Yeah. Yeah, all right, sure. <laughs> yeah, she definitely spends more of her screen time not looking glamorous yeah. than looking glamorous, so good for her. Um, and then, obviously, I won't I won't spoil anything. Beyond that, that's in the trailer. Everyone knows that she dies. Um, she's not the only big star that dies in the movie, but um, the that element kind of dries up by the halfway point. And the, the 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 second half of the film. I mean, I had problems with the first half, but the second half of the film is just, uh, just just dry and feels like it's coasting its way to the finish. Does it feel like an exercise to you? Like, I mean, so much of what a lot Soderbergh, of Soderbergh stuff yeah. feels like exercises. Yeah, like um, it's almost like, well, this is a genre the uh, the large cast being d- brought together by one thing, almost a towering inferno type thing. Yeah, uh, but I don't think. I mean. Because uh, his exercises often feel dry. Yeah, but here's the thing. Okay, as far as the towering in, Inferno thing, I, I mean, I've heard that that um, comparison a lot, and obviously, disaster oh, really? movie, lots of oh, sorry, lots of stars. It fits in with those, um, but I mean, in terms that it, it doesn't go beyond that. In terms of tone, it's not. It's not. It's not a melodramatic film, okay. which I guess is good, but it is um, very cold. But. Yeah, a lot of his stuff is exercises, and I do feel dry, but that alone isn't a bad thing, because I loved Haywire, and Haywire is an exercise, you know, in, in form. An exercise in awesomeness? <laughs> uh, I take it you loved Haywire. I really well. did. It's it's pretty great. Um, and, you know, that's also a pretty cold movie, but mm-hmm. uh, it doesn't have that sort of false sense of import yeah. to it that I think maybe hurt could contagion for me yeah I all right there's that we're taking too long what's what's your number two uh i will you believe only on two? yeah that's true um yeah i will uh i'll use what you were saying to transition into this next this next film and i i talked about it a little bit when uh, matthias was on uh the joe wright film hannah which i i liked pride and prejudice a lot i thought it was really well directed and I think really breathed life into a story and a genre or subgenre that 
I feel like we we're maybe getting tired of. It's just like okay, it's you know old like a Jane Austen thing with mm-hmm. with very stuffy people. Oh, except this one person. But there's a real fluidity to the way that he shoots uh, that world, and I I thought it really it breathed life into the world of of Pride and Prejudice. Then I saw Atonement, and all of the fluidity there seemed almost almost by the numbers a little bit like that that really interesting tracking shot of the beach it almost seemed like okay this is really neat and impressive <laughs> what are we doing <laughs> like don't, don't you have a story to get to <laughs> yeah um, i so agree about that shot it's a great shot if it existed on its own yeah it's it like what i always say I'm sure I've used this example, this example before. My both my younger brothers are huge fans of Eric Clapton, and I can't stand the music. I like Cream, but I can't stand the music of Eric, Eric Clapton. And when they try to tell me how good he is at the guitar, it's like that's not the only reason I listen to music. I'm sure yeah. that this is very difficult to play, and I couldn't master it in a hundred years. Yeah, that doesn't mean the song is good. Yeah, it's and so. I have a lot of problems with atonement, but like I, I felt yeah, like how do you his, feel about Eric Clapton? No, go ahead. He's fine, whatever. <laughs> you know, I, I don't care. Uh, but yes, I've heard that before. Of like, oh, he's such a great guitarist. Like, yeah, all right, sure, <laughs> that's fine. Um, but uh, t- my favorite artist, Tom Waits, a little sloppy, uh, <laughs> you could say. But uh, but it, it marked that there there was there was still that fluidity, but I didn't find as much humanity in atonement and then hannah comes along and in spite of solid performances by saoirse ronan eric banna kate blanchett um i felt like that film was almost hermetically sealed like if i i left feeling so cold and i just didn't care the one character i cared about was eric banna um oddly enough and this is not the fault of 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 the actors they were told to play this a certain way and again i felt like much like with contagion and like a film we've already talked about uh drive but we won't go into a lot of detail there um it it felt just like like an exercise like hey okay i haven't done this i'm gonna put the joe wright stamp on the action genre here we go Mm -hmm. and it just felt like it didn't feel like there were any stakes even though i knew that there were huge stakes but because i wasn't personally invested and i just found nothing to relate to with these characters um, and just the, the way in which he staged the action, it, 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 it all seemed like, like it had all been worked out ahead of time. And when it comes to action, and that's the good, that's the great thing about Haywire is that no matter how good the heroine is at, uh, taking out the bad guys, it doesn't feel like she's in control all the time. Mm-hmm. It feels like she's very good, maybe even the best at what she does. Yeah. But things could always go bad. Oh, there's a great moment. Not, I won't spoil stuff, but there's a there's a long getaway sequence. Um, her running away from people. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't go. It's not like she's not James Bond. It doesn't go quite the way yeah. that she she plans. There are mistakes that she makes or yeah. things she didn't account for, and she keeps having to change her plan while getting away from the guys. It's an awesome awesome sequence and it humanizes her it shows that she's a, she can adapt and she can sort of improvise a little bit and i, I never think, got that impression with hannah yeah i just I also, didn't care I, 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 this this whole podcast is going to turn into us loving haywire but um <laughs> that's all right i also think that sequence that we're talking about 
in Haywire is kind of the litmus test. If by that point in the movie, if you're not into it enough to stick with this long uh, getaway, uh, very meticulously plotted out getaway sequence, uh, it's not the movie for you by that point. I mean, I was on board pretty quick, uh-huh. but I like that sequence. I also like the sequence where she's chasing after someone, mm-hmm. just one person. Yeah. But we'll talk about that another time. Yeah. Um, uh, so, yeah. So, Hannah is just... Uh, and a lot of people really love it, and it's it's well made, but to what end? I guess is what I'm saying. All right, I would like to talk about. I, I guess this is me being positive about a movie, but also oh, good for you, disagreeing with the consensus here. I, I think um, a movie that I that I loved and was w- within honorable mention, like. That within my own mention period, like pretty far into the year, to where I started to go, like I need to see—is this really going to happen? Uh, it didn't end up. It got pushed out of our honorable mentions, uh, but I still really um, stick up for this film. It's Tarsem Singh's Immortals, <laughs> uh, which I missed at the three-dollar theater. Damn it! It it is <clears throat> along with maybe um, the Guard with Brennan Gleeson. It's one of the most purely fun movies that I saw this year. Um, I guess, I mean, both of those have, like, gore and uh, the guard has some pretty pitch black humor. So I guess that <laughs> that uh, tells you a few things about what I find fun. But um, uh, I, I, Immortals, I think, suffered in its people's responses, I guess, because it's not the intensely personal vision that The Fall was by Tarsem Singh. Um, it's also come along four years after 300 which is in my opinion one of the worst movies to be released in my lifetime but uh is well liked and made a lot of money excuse me uh and so people i guess we're just comparing immortals to 300 um and they liked 300 i also compared it to 300 and found it uh, way, way better. Not that it's somehow more mature or deeper, mm-hmm. uh, you know, or more... It's certainly not <laughs> subtle or nuanced. No. There's nothing... Subtlety doesn't come within 100 yards of this movie at any point. Um, but it is cohesive. Mm-hmm. Um uh, you know, I, m- one of my main problems with uh, um, Zack Snyder is that he's just, w- or with with Three Hundred in particular, um, is that in that in that film he's just kind of a cinematic stenographer. He's just taking down Frank Miller's yeah. uh, comic book, it, putting it, translating it to cinema form, and I don't think I really believe at no point is he considering what this story is about. And you know it's interesting. I think some people who have a who have a, a complaint about Three Hundred, they say, "Oh, this film's trying way too hard." I'm like, I don't think it's trying hard enough. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I, yeah, I don't think it's trying at all. Whereas um, Tarsem knows he knows the story he's telling. He knows the characters. Yes, the motivations and themes are rather broad, but not in a hack way. In a sort of classic way. This is, you know, about uh, it's it's. A story about a person finding his purpose and 
using it for good to defeat evil. It's I mean that's as that's as deep as it gets, and um, that's a that's a classic you know uh, classic idea, a classic theme to explore. And um, Tar Tarsim Singh does it with um, not only his sort of uh, trademark um, visual extravagances. Um, people wear a lot of weird hats in this movie. <laughs> Um, and th- there's, there's a lot of, um, you know, uh, I guess it, just I- innovative layouts or, or, you know, tableaus, uh, presented, but not only that, but he does, uh, action, just straightforward action, uh, r- really well, like really excitingly. And he does a lot of the same, again, I, I don't want to just compare this to 300, but I guess I am going to. He does a lot of the same speed ramping stuff that that Zack Snyder does. Zack Snyder has sort of made his trademark in a lot of ways. Um, and, but at at every turn, I just uh, I felt more control over the film on Tarsem's mm-hmm. point, uh, Tarsem's part, than I ever did in Three Hundred with Zack Snyder's uh, mm-hmm. on Zack Snyder's part. So yes. The Immortals in summation is a lot of fun. It's um, inventive and incredibly gory. <laughs> okay. I think it's... Does it come out on DVD soon? I feel like it does I, I very soon. Hmm. But no, I, d- I wish that I had gotten to see it on, on the big screen, but it's just... I, I know that this is probably wrong. Like I should probably focus on seeing the things that I want to see, but... You know when you put together when you're putting together like your your favorite movies of last year list, and you're like, this is probably not going to crack my top ten. I know I'm prejudging. <laughs> I just don't see it making the cut. And so I was like, all right, I guess I'll see. We need to talk about Kevin or something. Um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I do I do want to see it. Um, okay, I'll go positive here. Okay. Um, I will talk about a movie that uh, totally bombed and people did not like. And people considered a huge failure, and it, there are so many negative associations with it that it'll probably surprise people that I like it. I don't love it, by the way. It has major flaws, but I do, I do like a lot of it, and it did, re- edge, edge it did really CD. resonate with me. And that's uh, the Beaver. Oh, okay. Directed by uh, Jodie Foster and starring Mel Gibson. And that last thing I said is probably why. You know what? One of many reasons why people were not interested in this film. Uh, I think the title, the unfortunate title, mm-hmm. which the, apparently the script was like bouncing around Hollywood for a while and everyone was kind of interested. But the minute Jodie Foster got it and decided she wanted to do it, she would have been. She should have said like, OK, we need to change that title. That's really cute. But we need to change that title. <laughs> um, and then uh, then the premise is outlandish of course, which is about a corporate exec- a depressed corporate, ex- corporate executive who finds his voice and finds a certain degree of redemption in speaking through this puppet of a beaver. So I think people were like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to see that. And then Mel Gibson cherry on top, <laughs> the uh, abrasive, horrifying cherry on top. But, but I did watch it uh, sort of out of curiosity. And 
in many ways, there is a subgenre of like the quirky angst film. I'd say that American, American Beauty might have kicked it off, mm-hmm. but then you find it with like a Little Miss Sunshine, just where character everything's just a, a little heightened. It, it doesn't take place in our reality, but it is a close enough. And this it's is a recognizable. Movie you liked? This is a movie I liked <laughs> because here's the thing: some of the writing is spot on but the acting all around is great uh jody i forget that jody foster as an actress is good like i forget that from time to time (laughs) because at this point i think people just don't like her or whatever i don't i don't know just i feel like uh, whenever i talk to somebody about jody foster they just never seem to I don't know. Oh, I like Jodie Foster. I, well, I do too. Well, Thank you're not you, the only David. person I talk to, David. Okay. Uh, I just want to go on the record. I like Jodie Foster. I think maybe people think that uh, she's past her prime. Is and that there's an argument to be be made for that. But I thought she was very good in Carnage, and I don't th- consider her to be someone that is funny. But she's often very funny in Carnage as well. Uh, but I thought that she, her performance is good. Anton Yelchin is in it, and he's very good. Jennifer Lawrence is in it. She's funny. Uh, not funny. I'm sorry. Her character is not funny. She's good, is what I meant to say. Uh, And then Mel Gibson, who, regardless of what you might think of him as a man, he's still a pretty good actor, and he will bring what is necessary to a character. I think we just need to, like, direct people to our episode about Mel Gibson. Right. Because I always feel that, that, like you just did, that knee-jerk thing to apologize for liking his films. Yeah, and it's... Yeah, and in, I believe within that episode, we also talked about Roman Polanski a little bit, or we yeah. might have mentioned that somewhere else. Sure. I don't totally remember. But anyway, uh, and then years ago in an episode I don't think is available anymore, we talked about separating the art from the artist. But uh, his performance is really, really good. And the thing is, there's so many things that on paper I wouldn't like. Just little quirks about that Anton Yel- uh, Yelchin's character has. Like, he's got, like, four or five things that on paper are like, ugh, no thank you. But the way it's executed, both in the dialogue and especially the acting, it seems not merely feasible, but surprisingly effective. Um, and then all the stuff with the beaver itself is really well executed. And, of course, it's silly. But... When you see the level of commitment that Mel Gibson as an actor is willing to, the level of commitment that he's willing to commit to, there's probably a better way to phrase that. Without dangling a preposition. Oh, indeed. Um, You're a jackass. (laughs) Uh, This is the way I talk. And so uh, everything, it just seems more real and more feasible and much more relatable. And there's just certain things that... You know, without without getting too personal, there are certain things that it's a film that I think maybe has a few too many uh, easy answers about depression. But there are cert- there are other things where it has such an understanding for like mental illness. And there's a, a part where Mel Gibson, as the Beaver, is talking about himself, and so he's like, "You don't want to," and he's talking to Jodie Foster. He's like, "This." You don't want to deal with this man anymore. You want to deal with me. And he says, this man is a dead end. And the the phrasing of that is so spot on because, frankly, like I I have used that phrase for myself. (laughs) Dead end. I've used the phrase. And 
and it's just it's someone who who understands that and knows when to have those very real moments and so it is a flawed film in many ways and i could see some people watching it and just being like oh no thank you but if you if you try to you just need to try and remove things try and remove what you think about mel gibson try to remove uh any problems you might have with the premise and just just watch it and i think you will be surprised it's again it's not amazing it certainly isn't perfect i wouldn't even go as far as say it's great but i'd say it's worth watching and when you watch it, you can go over and listen to my extended episode on it about uh, uh, on more than one lesson. All right, one of my least popular episodes because no one has seen it. <laughs> All right, number four of five for me, going back the other way, back negative. All right, and uh, obviously, if you weren't switching off, I would have been able to. I actually would have been able to segue quite nicely from Immortals into this film. I'm sorry. No, it's the, you know this is the this is the road that we've set out for ourselves. This is the life we chose, David. Yeah, exactly. Because um, um, this film that I won't otherwise have a chance to talk about is Zack Snyder's Sucker Punch. <laughs> now, what this means to those of you who are paying attention is that Zack Snyder's Snucker Punch. <laughs> <laughs> I might have wanted to see it if it was called Snucker Punch. <laughs> Zack Snyder's Sucker Punch is not my worst film of the year. I didn't. That's it, really something. It's not down there. I mean, I, I, I can't remember. Last year, I don't think Legend of the Guardians was my worst film of the year, but it was, it was closer to the bottom than this is. Legends of the Guardians. What? I don't remember. You'll have to be more specific. Oh, Legend of the Guardians: The Owls of Gahul. Got it. All right, thank you. Um, but Sucker Punch is a bit higher on the list because it goes again. It's it's the opposite of what I was saying about. 300 mm-hmm. you really can feel his hand on every second of it have you seen have you seen it no but i, okay. I know what you it it is um it, it is an autorist film and it is it is probably Zack snyder's masterpiece and it is awful <laughs> it is unbelievably awful and so dumb and I know I just said earlier in the show, I don't like to just dismiss things as dumb, but I want to be clear about what I mean here. It is dumb. It is stupid. It, it is <laughs> it is the work of a person who is not very smart or d- is missing. Is it possible? Hang on. Maybe he's, maybe he's plenty smart, but his interests, he's not interested in smart things. Maybe. Uh, it, it just seems, at least, you know, uh, people are a lot of things. So in this avenue, this part of his id that he's choosing to explore, which is fascinating. It makes for a fascinating film. I would watch it again tonight. <laughs> I, I want to make that clear. I plan on watching the director's cut as soon as I can get uh, uh, my, my hands on it. Um, but this particular part of his id it has... It's so juvenile. It's adolescent. It, the fact... Uh, I I want to make... A, I don't even know because I, I'm clearly... I, it's been a couple weeks since I've seen this. I'm still searching for words. There there are movies that are um, false girl power movies that are just, uh, you know, excuses to put young women in revealing clothing mm. that are cynical. 
I honestly believe that Zack Snyder is not being cynical here. I, He's I, a true believer. I think that his understanding of femininity and of feminism uh, is adolescent and is is it's it's backwards to the point that this is the this is the culmination of everything he believes uh feminine power can be because he's that dumb so you're saying that you would not have been surprised if after the film was released Zack snyder had said it is finished and killed himself <laughs> yeah <laughs> no no I, I want more of this kind of thing from him okay <laughs> i do okay uh, because, um, I remember a, a thing that I said, I, I, I can't remember if I said it on the show, but I know I said it on Twitter back when the movie was, when their billboards going up and I, you know, TV spots and trailers, I said, uh, there's about, a, I, I'm paraphrasing myself there. I said, there's a, uh, I think there's a 90% chance sucker punch will be terrible and a 10% chance it will be a masterpiece. And I think it's both. Oh yeah. I think it is both things. Uh, and it, it. Uh, again, I think it's uh, it, it is it is awful, but I also think, in a way, if you are a person who is uh, academically or intellectually interested in film as an art form, you should see it. And you know, you do hear from time to time uh, about, and I remember years ago, and I'm sure I've said it on the show before. Years ago, I read a discussion of Vertigo, and someone said that Hitchcock splatters his psychosis all over the screen uh-huh. with Vertigo. And ever since I had, and there's just something so perfect about phrasing it that way, yeah. that every once in a while you'll run across a director, and there's one movie that just splatters who they are yeah we've talked across about before, the screen. i think in terms of there will be, there will be blood there will be blood i think there with orson welles there's a couple but i feel like f for fake uh-huh. and chimes at midnight which i haven't seen it's a hard film to find you you can find i'm sure there are plenty of really muddy cop uh vhs copies around there that you can that you can see that's how i saw it uh and then you, you know hitchcock with vertigo i think uh well various with uh woody allen Mm-hmm. But, and um, with Stanley Kubrick, I think it'd be hard to p- pin down. One. Yeah, probably. Um, but and so like so, I feel like. But that's the thing is, these are good movies that we're talking about. Wellesian tomfoolery aside, uh-huh. with F for Fake. Uh, but it's possible for a director of terrible films. I won't even say a terrible director, but a director of terrible films. Uh-huh. To splatter his psychosis all over, and that's exactly what I've heard, not merely from you, but from other people, in regards to Sucker Punch, which does intrigue me. I yeah. do want to see it now. Well, I want to make, uh, you know, I, I've talked about things like the, the, you know, the girl power thing that I can't explain. There are things in the movie that I, that speak to that, that I don't know what, I don't know why he chose, why, <laughs> what is Scott Glenn's character in this movie? Uh... He's the only character except for like the he's the only human living human who only exists in the deepest of the fantasy realms. Okay. Because there are three layers to this movie. I don't know if you know. Okay. There's reality and then there's two different fantasy realms. I mean, deeper than the next. Where do kicks fit in? 
the kicks are mostly in the third. Okay. The, the, the bottom one. Okay. Uh, as well as swords and um, zombies. Oh, here's something I want to When I say to. kicks, I mean like Inception kicks. Oh, okay. No, there's no kicks in, the, in that sense. No, I had forgotten about that. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, and one thing I want to clarify. A lot of people in writing about this movie talk about there being zombie Nazis. No. That is a World War One sequence. Those are zombie Germans. Okay. But they're not Nazis. Let's not... I think that's important. Yeah. Not all Germans are Nazis. And that is the best part of the film, actually. The the World War One trench zombie German thing, uh, it just in terms of pure action, is uh, pretty badass. Yeah. I, I actually like that. like it a lot. Uh, I, I've, I've said enough uh, about it, but um, it's awful and you should see it. Yeah, see, I feel like that's that's interesting. You, you said you were going negative. It's, that sounded pretty positive <laughs> yeah, to me. So. Um, okay, so I'll bring up uh, these next two. Were for me. I'll. We've both seen them, so this might. This hopefully won't take too long. Although we haven't been going as long as I thought we were. So let's really draw it out. I yeah, want. I want two hours out of this thing. I have to go to work tomorrow. Oh, indeed. Yeah, tomorrow's my day off. I'm so excited. Uh, okay, girl with the dragon tattoo. Now, this is not a beloved film, um, but it's respected. I mean, it's getting nominated for, for various awards, like it was up for a Director's Guild nomination. Uh, and some people just love it. I mean, some people think it's really great. Um, not all critics uh, love it. Some really do. So, you know, it's, my, I'm not really going against the grain, but... It's it's a film that I was I was hoping for for big things, mm-hmm. and I know that I shouldn't say things based on on trailers, but man, that trailer really set you up. Like, are you fucking ready for this? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I never saw it. It's a good, well, but it's a really well made trailer. But it's it's just like Fincher. That's right, <laughs> Fincher doing doing pulpy material. Yeah, that's right. We're back to Fight Club and all that kind of thing. So seven. Seven better than Fight Club, right? right. Uh, yeah, but as far as what people would be more excited about, okay. the Fincher return to set, to uh, Fight Club, people would be more excited about. I think. Um, but I think Seven's more pulpy. I think it's I think it's pulpier, yeah. But when people think of like their favorite, when most people think of their favorite Fincher right. movie, I think they they would think of Fight Club. So, what would you say your favorite is Zodiac? Zodiac. Okay. Zodiac is. As I've often said, one of the one of the best American films of that decade. It's probably my favorite as well. So, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. So I, I went in really kind of excited for it, and I hadn't read any of the books. Uh, my wife has, and, and you know, like many other people, just devoured them. Just really loved them, um, and I hadn't seen any of the uh, any of the. Uh, I think all th- yeah, all three books had been have been adapted into into films. Uh, but I hadn't seen any of those, so I went in and and I was excited. I was actually excited that Rooney Mara got to play, uh, got an opportunity to play this dynamic of a character. And I thought, wow, for her to get this part, this she must really be showing something amazing. And uh, and she is by far the best part of the movie. She's like, great. She, I have as much as I wanted like Tilda Swinton to be nominated for. Uh, we need to talk about Kevin Rooney Mara in there. And don't get me wrong, like, some people say, like, well, Meryl Streep and Glenn Close. 
maybe they don't deserve to be there, but their slots were already assured. <laughs> right. <laughs> the, the fifth spot was the one that people weren't sure about. And if Tilda Swinton was going to be taken out, I'm perfectly fine with Rooney Mara being in there. She is wonderful. However, everything else in the movie, it, the, the acting all around is pretty good. Christopher Plummer's a lot of fun. I like him. Uh, Daniel Craig, I think, does a pretty good job. But just everything else, it almost just had a, it had a rote feel. It just, it almost, to me, felt like, all right, I'm David Fincher, and uh, this is a, this is, I'm making a, fil- uh, a film based on sort of a phenomenon, a modern phenomenon, so uh, let's do this. I will, I will do some Fincherisms, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, we'll be done. And it'll, I'll probably do way too many takes of it all, but um, it's, and I, I'm I'm really being a little too uh, probably a little too dismissive because because it well it I'm just was... now realizing I don't think you and I have talked about this film all that much because I'm not, I'm not realizing that even though I also didn't like it I liked it a lot more than you did and yeah and it's it's just it just felt to me like like everyone's just sort of going through the motions and while those motions can still be rather impressive like David Fincher going through the motions still pretty good. Um, and so there were there were plenty of things that I did like about the film, but ultimately it just it felt like really dressed up pulpy material. Not that pulp can be bad, but it just it felt like it was tr- like like it was trying to will itself into importance. And with the exception, I mean, there's a, a rape scene and all that, but and it and the rape scene thankfully did not feel very exploitative to me. Um, but the thing that got me was just, it's, it was, everything was just treated with such, with such seriousness that it felt like they were trying to convince me and possibly themselves that they were doing something really, really important. And the other, the last thing is that in spite of Rooney Mara's amazing performance, I have major problems with that character there. She, as far as I can tell, displays not a single character flaw. And there is no arc for a character as dynamic as that. She does nothing wrong and there is nothing in her that can do something wrong. She may have disagree with you 100% about that. I think now there are things wrong with her, but I think as far as her for lack, this, this might not be the correct term as far as her righteousness I think uh, I think she's one hundred percent. I'm sorry to say one hundred percent after you just said it. Um, damn it! Why'd you put it in that? <laughs> Ooh, and now we're going term. head to head. Yeah, um, but like, I, I think she just uh, is is too spotless. I disagree so much, and uh, you're saying she's the villain of the piece. No, unfortunately, we can't get into too many specifics here because we're not doing oh, spoilers. That's true. Um, but. Uh, here's what here's what I'll talk about. Um, my, my take on the film, because it explores one of my favorite topics, and it, it I think it would make a good companion pieces, which is why I think they are actually saying something important up until it does devolve into just the pulpy uh, right. serial killer movie that like kissed the girls or yeah, something. That's like what that. I compared it to. Like, yeah, oh really? Is, okay, uh, you were here, remember? That's right. But I think we both had the same. Th- that's like the perfect. Yeah, and, and like along um, came a spider and all that. But up until it does that, a film I compare it to, I think it would make a good double feature with, 
is a film that I think is uh, uh, criminally underappreciated, uh, although I think you like it. Uh, Tony Scott's Man on Fire mm-hmm. with Denzel Washington. Um, and I know uh, people. some people have problems with a lot of the Tony Scott-isms that right. he, he does, his sort of, you know, uh, ADD editing, you know, um, and just his generally schizophrenic approach to storytelling. Um, but what Man on Fire is about is um, to what extent can uh, – is it possible for two wrongs to make a right? Mm-hmm. And um, what can uh, – you know, the, the, the tagline for – or the poster line or whatever for um, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo was evil shall with evil be expelled. And that's where I, I, I think if that's the – if you go in with that in mind, that's very much what it's about. I mean – um, again, I don't want to get too, you know, spoilery, but she at one point takes revenge on a person. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, there's a part of you in watching that, that wants that person to, uh, suffer because the thing that they've done is, um, is awful. But I think there also needs to be an intellectual moral part of you saying that, uh, no, this is horrible, what she's doing. This is a horrible thing. Just like the things that uh, Creasy in Man on Fire does. Mm-hmm. You, Because of the righteousness of his overall cause, you sort of, uh, in a primeval sense, want to be on his side, but you have to consider mm-hmm. what is um, the overall balance of lives taken and lost or harmed uh and what is the damage to his for lack of a better word soul and to me the the notion of uh redemption or justice through violence <clears throat> runs through a lot of the girl with the dragon tattoo up until it becomes a bad movie at a certain point um <clears throat> And that that's that's what I got out of it, and that's why I was I was riveted to my chair for most of it, which is why the turn um, into uh, banality um, uh, hit me so hard and upset me so much. the The Girl Dragon Tattoo is probably I've probably spent more time thinking about it than any other movie that I didn't like this year. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and you, would you say you don't like it because yeah, of the yeah? Attack? If uh, the thing I often say off mic and on, I think is uh, pass fail. If I had to give it a pass fail, I'd come down and fail. Mm. Um, but I'm closer to that median point, I think, than you uh, clearly are. I would say because I I agree. Uh, something that I movies like Mystic River, which is not uh, that great of a film, uh, but a, a recent. <clears throat> There's been a somewhat re- like in the last thirty years, you you find movies that examine the idea of revenge and come out uh, against it, <laughs> um, which I guess that's pretty good. Although after the eighties, I guess you needed to make some strong uh, strong appeals to that. Although now that now Liam Neeson seems to have cornered the market on uh, <laughs> on taking revenge on you know even if it's wild animals, but uh, so it's. It's the kind of thing I, I know it sounds weird, but it's almost it's almost like movie logic. I remember 
Okay, I'll, I'm going to make two uh, illustrations and or comparisons or whatever. Um, I once wrote a, uh, I once read a script for somebody in Chicago. I was doing uh, some consulting and uh, it was really exciting. It was the first time I ever got to do it. And he was, uh, and he try, he was trying to make a, a thriller that might have been supernatural, but it wasn't. But the thing is, it it was a prime example of him not totally realizing that. Okay, I as a film, same with same with like The Omen, uh-huh. where you hear Richard Donner say like. Even in the even in the uh, in the commentary, like he's somewhat like mocking of Gregory Peck's character for like going along with this. And part of me is like, you know, the movie you're making, right? Like (laughs) you are you are presenting clear cause and effect. We are not trained as movie watchers to be okay to chalk things up to coincidence unless that is a major theme of the film like Magnolia or Shortcuts or something like that. Like we are trained that if something's on screen, it's on screen for a reason and it is relevant to what is happening and not merely because it happened to occur, but that something's going on. And that's, and, and so like the guy whose script I read, like I told him like, you either need to commit to this or make a bigger deal out of it not being this, because as of right now, it looks like you are just not doing well enough in either direction. And he just refused to hear it. And so I feel like there is movie logic combined with a certain attitude and the attitude of like the, like the film, I think as, as grueling and grisly as some of uh, Elizabeth's actions are uh, in her, her uh, retribution. um, I think the film certainly I'm fine with the character having a note of triumph because it is for her, you know, in, in the performance. But I feel like the film sort of treats it that way as well. I feel like the film is, and I, and I don't necessarily want a film to judge its characters, but positively or negatively. Um, but I do. And, but I do feel like if, if that is a theme that it's exploring, it needs to explore it in a different way the other or in a in a in a more um purposeful way whereas and and the the other thing i'll come up with you neither you nor i like the character of kate from lost (laughs) okay and i remember like who who is this okay i'm sorry i'm i'm being the i'm being the series now Uh of lost who is this kate character what has she done She's a criminal, but what did she do? Then comes the episode, What Kate Did. Oh, shit. <laughs> Here's what she did. What anyone would do. You know, like, not what anyone would do, but it's that kind of thing that as, as, as consumers of, of art, and especially, and by the way, Lost is not quite as gritty as Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, yeah. uh, but like, it's that kind of thing that we're trained to be like, oh, that's understandable. That's perfectly understandable, as opposed to something like Mystic River, which again I, is not necessarily a wonderful thing, but it shows the the lengths that someone is and and how blinded someone can be when wanting revenge, like one, like 
and and also it's like what's the difference between revenge and justice i mean justice you could say like well justice is what police and the law do but she couldn't trust that because she's been screwed around by by the system so she does her own justice now i feel like if she had gone almost further than he did but i think she now she yeah damn yeah, i i, I don't want i don't want to give spoilers yeah. but if she had gone further than he had gone um I feel like then the film would have been like, ooh, that was maybe o- maybe overkill. Like, but at the same time, like that's what revenge does: is it everything? It ups the ante constantly. But uh, but I feel like the the film's attitude was not as as uh, clear cut. I think you and I, when we watch a film, we know that like revenge is a slippery slope, and it's just it cannot be a motivator like you and I know that in life. And I think we bring that to film, but I don't think the film has that attitude. I don't know. I I disagree. I felt that it was what you said. It wasn't judging. It was just presenting. And I think, you know, uh, Fincher's style can be, uh, can lend itself well to that approach because he's so clinical at times. He he can be not clinical, but yeah. And I think that's some of my problem with, uh, with fight club but um because it it the general attitude is like damn this tyler durden's cool isn't he yeah um yeah but it, but we need to move away from that but like but no this was a this was a fun dialogue I we so, so seldom yeah. even though neither of us really like the movie yeah but um, i want to watch it again now and just leave at a certain point <laughs> yeah and you know when to leave now so it's fine yeah except if i leave at that point i'm if I leave at the point that I didn't like the film, I miss the biggest laugh in the film for me. But Which you'll need to tell me off, Mike, because I yeah. don't remember it. Yeah. Okay. Um, I tweeted about that big laugh, though, so if uh, people follow me on Twitter, they might know what I'm referring to. All right, my, my final one. And uh, I will end on a positive note, although I think we're going to be ending on a negative one. Yes, we will. <laughs> and it'll be a, it'll be a, a, a switch, because the last film I like more than you did, but neither of us really loved okay. it. Okay. Um, but I will end on a positive note with a film that... I don't think um, – it sort of came and went and it seemed like while reviews were not negative, they were, I guess, mixed and not as positive as I think they should have been because I think this this is a, a, a really good uh, film and a really, a really small film um, that not, not enough people saw. Uh, and I – I, I like to say the director's name when I say a film. I don't know how to pronounce this guy's first name. I'm going to take a stab at it. Uh, Azazel Jacobs. And the film is called Terry. Mm. Starring John C. Riley and the one of the kids from that Fat Camp TV show. Oh. Um, I can't remember his name now. Uh, damn it. I had it up and I forgot it. And I never watched that show either. You know what I'm talking about? Because you don't have cable. It was right. on ABC Family, and okay. it was from uh, the same creator uh, as uh, My So-Called Life. Oh, okay. Did a show about teenagers at a like summer like fat camp. There's parents. It's a reality show. No, no. It's oh, a, it's a dramatic show. Um, What's uh, the show? G- huge. Gina Tor- That's it. Yeah, huge. huge. Okay. Yeah, Gina oh, Torres yeah, yeah. was on it. Yeah. Uh, the one that got canceled uh, because well, we already have a show about fat people, Mike and Molly. Oh, right, yeah. Uh, and, yeah, Sean, my co-host on my other TV-centric podcast, was a big fan of Huge. Uh, I should I should watch it at some point, maybe 15 years after the fact, like I did <laughs> with my so-called life. Anyway, uh, that's not the point here. Uh, the point is that we're talking about this film, Terry, which 
like I said, is has John C. Riley. It also has um, Creed from The Office, uh, whose real name is Creed. Creed, Creed Bratton. Bratton. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he plays um, the titular character's, uh, I can't remember if it's grandfather or uncle, but his his guardian who mm-hmm. he lives with, but who is slipping into Alzheimer's. Mm. And Terry is, uh, as I said, you know, uh, as I implied, he's an overweight kid, um, not a popular kid at all, um, not very interested in being popular, it seems. Uh, he's not, uh, or maybe he's just been deadened by years of being mocked. Um, and he is so not into school and that whole thing that he started wearing his pajamas to school. That's kind of where the film starts. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the film really starts with a an amazing sequence where he walks through the woods from his house to the school in the morning and he gets to the edge of the woods where he can see like the field in the front of the school and all the kids are sort of hanging out uh, you know these teenagers hanging out before before high school starts and he just stands there on the edge of the woods looking at the field until the bell rings and they all start heading in then once they're all headed in then he then he walks forward uh he he clearly just wants to be as outside of this as he can be uh and uh this pajama wearing uh behavior is the last straw i guess and he starts having to have uh regular counseling sessions with the school uh i guess the vice principal slash counselor or whatever uh john c Riley. um and then uh, you know it it goes on from there uh as <laughs> i assume that's where the film ends right yeah no i was by the way i don't know if you listen to the pod f Tomcast or if you listen to comedy bang bang um but uh paul f tompkins friend of our show mm-hmm. uh does an impression of andrew lloyd weber mm-hmm. and he will often he will as if he's making up premises for new musicals or songs yeah. off the top of his head, he'll just start something and then he'll say, and it goes on from there. Yeah. And uh, I find it so funny. My girlfriend and I like say it all the time. It's worked its way into my conversation now. So that's what that was. <laughs> and it goes on from there. Um, but anyway, it's, uh, the, uh, again, going back to like, uh, the with the bike, it's such an unsentimental look at, um, at, at teenagers. Uh, and, Especially now, I by the time I got to high school, because I went to a big high school, that I was able to find my niche, and I wasn't that ostracized or made fun of in high school. Um, that was more of a elementary and middle school experience, but I related to Terry in so many ways. I mean, I was a uh, incredibly skinny kid, but still uh, very unpopular. Um, and so. It, it it captures that feeling of a smart kid, but he's not someone who would be considered a nerd because he's bad in school. Mm-hmm. Um, because he just doesn't want to be there or engage, you know? Uh, so in, in these ways, the movie really spoke to me. The other ways in which the movie really spoke to me, um, as evidenced by casting John C. Riley, who's been in uh, a lot of great comedies, is that it's incredibly funny. And a lot of the reviews I read... Or maybe not a lot, but a number of the reviews I read had took issue with this. Not not with the fact that it's funny, but the style of comedy, hmm. because it is a little bizarre. It is 
it, it's you know this is a very the 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 film itself is um very realistic and you know intimately observed and then the comedy is maybe not broad but almost surreal at times you know um i want to give an example actually um there are other kids who have to meet regularly with um with the counselor so at one point terry is waiting to go in while another kid is in his meeting and the kid comes out, He's in, this kid is in a wheelchair, and he's wearing sunglasses. And he talks for a while, and um, and he sa- and again, eventually he says, what's with the sunglasses? Why are you wearing sunglasses? And he's like, oh. And he takes them off. He's like, sorry, it's no big deal. And then John C. Riley comes out of the office uh, to call in Terry for the next appointment, and he's wearing sunglasses. And Terry's like, what the hell? And, and John C. Riley takes his glasses. He's like, sorry, cool breeze club. Members only. <laughs> so... <laughs> it's it's it, that's one of the funniest moments of the film for me but also the what it says about the fact that he that John Cena's character has these personal little like games and relationships with each of the kids uh it, the amount of information you glean from that thing that from that weird little joke yeah. about the cool breeze club uh it speaks volumes um and I also I haven't even gotten to the fact that um John Cena's character is by no means flawless. He is he is no saint. He is as human as the rest of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are times th- that you love that he's on Terry's side, and there are times that you are so angry with him for what he's said or done to Terry. But mm-hmm. you can't blame him because it's a great performance and a great character. Uh, and both of these... I mean, there's a number of characters in the film, but really Terry and John C. Riley's character are the co-leads um, and they're both great characters and great performances. Hmm. And out of curiosity, uh, the is the tone of the film. I mean, you said there's kind of some bizarre stuff, but is the tone of the film that like it's very realistic, or is it a little bit heightened? I would say it's very realistic. I would put okay. it like, um, uh, I mean, stylistically, it's. I don't want to go as far as comparing it to Mean Creek, okay. um, um, not only because that's only about also about an ostracized, uh, overweight kid, but it does have that kind of ground level aesthetic. Okay, because my my question is, and this isn't a criticism because I haven't seen the film, but um, the idea of Terry is the name of the kid, right? Yeah, the idea of Terry like wearing pajamas to school, like that's the kind of thing that you would see in a well, a movie like The Beaver, to be honest with right, you. Right. Um, and also, I feel like, I mean, do they do they do a good job of making it seem like that's something he would do? Because it does feel like someone like that would want to try and be as invisible as possible, and something like that would really call attention to him. No, uh, invisibility is not his thing because okay. he knows he knows how big he is, right. and he knows that he can't he can't be invisible, right? Um, he has to go to school. He might as well be comfortable. I think that's kind of his okay. approach. Okay. Yeah, it's. I had heard good things, and and uh, and I like John C. Riley. It's. Oh, this, and Creed Breton is great too. Is he? Yeah. Okay. That's kind of good to know. But uh, let me. John C. Riley, like he's always good, but I think when he does things that are like silly even though i love him in something like talladega nights um which i haven't seen 
it's it's a pretty good movie. But like when he does like like silly stuff, which there's nothing wrong with. I some and then he goes back to doing something serious, even though he's. It sounds like he's pretty funny in this. I, I sometimes it's gotten to the point now where I feel like, wow, he's that's really interesting. It's like, but ten years ago it was like the serious guy from the hours is pretty funny. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. It, it goes the other way, and so uh, and I I I feel like casting him in your film is a really good way to ground your film in reality because mm-hmm. he so often feels like the kind of person you can just meet yeah. in life. Um, and I think he's one of the better parts of, uh, of uh, Magnolia. So, last film we're going to talk about is a film that you have been so vocally critical of that I'm, I feel like people are probably curious about it. But when I saw it, I, I wasn't as critical as, as you were, but I really went in expecting to not love it but really have a really like it and uh i i wouldn't say i didn't like it but i did not embrace it as much as a lot of people did now, you say um people on the edge of their seats here you say that i've been vocally critical of it but have i been on the podcast not on the podcast but on twitter on twitter and also um i recorded a skype audio blog thing with dave chen about oh, about it okay um that you can probably find on DaveChen.com. Yeah, probably. I don't know what... I should know what his website is, but I just well, he's, click links to it. He's got his fingers fingers in so many pies. Who can keep track? Yeah. Just, just Google Dave Chen and David Bax. You'll find it. Yeah. But, um, yeah, and so the, the movie is uh, Steve McQueen's Shame, mm-hmm. which has shown up on a lot of best lists. And I was really and i i like michael fassbender as a as an actor and and it seemed like you know it's an addiction film and there's always the potential for like really good acting in that sort of thing uh, in that sort of film and so i was really excited for it and having having and it getting all these accolades i was like oh man i gotta see this uh i saw it and uh michael fassbender is very very good and great. And he is, I mean, he is willing to commit to anything that the director wants him to do. We'll get to that in a second. Uh, I think Carrie Mulligan is also very good. Also willing to commit. We'll break, I'll get to that in a second. And she can't fully commit to that accent, to her American accent, um, which is the thing that I only bother calling out in movies that I don't like. Oh, okay. <laughs> if I like the movie, then I don't care if the accent's good or not. And I didn't even really notice that much, oddly enough. Yeah. But uh, And what's more is the way the film is shot, because I, I haven't seen Hunger, so I, this is my first uh, Stephen yeah, Queen nor film. have I. Uh, the I way that it was shot, I love, I love that. I, as you know, I'm a big fan of like films like when the camera is just willing to linger mm-hmm. on an actor's face so that we can see everything that they're going through and it just studies them. I'm a big fan of that. And that's what this movie's all about. It's very, it has a very, very meditative pace that I like. And yet, so much of the film just didn't work for me. Like, it's surprisingly melodramatic. And it's almost operatic in its tone. And I recognize that addiction can be like that, I guess. But it just didn't seem to fit the style. And it's just, I don't know. It just didn't feel good to me. It's also um, surprisingly uh, 
what's the what's the word I'm I'm, I'm looking for? It sexy? <laughs> no, it's not very intelligent. It's I'll compare it to a movie from a couple years ago that I hated. Okay, uh, uh, Christopher Nolan's Inception, which is a movie that I think uses its very sort of austere and prestigious look to convince you that it's much smarter than it is. And I, I think that's a lot of what's going on in Shame. Uh, I mean, I think it's meticulously designed, and sometimes that is uh, great to look at, like with the the single-shot jogging sequence, which is mm-hmm. maybe the highlight of the film for me. And sometimes it's um, ridiculously ostentatious to me, the way that the film is, is photographed. Uh, but really, I think... If you just were to take all that away and just think about what is it actually saying about addiction or or sex addiction in particular, not much, I don't think. It's not very insightful. Right. It's shallow. And the thing is, like, the way it handles the addiction, it never addresses it directly. And I would like that, I think. Like a character who it's not like someone says you're addicted to sex and he says no I'm not like it's I'm not sure if I would like it to be that over <laughs> but I think I would like that this idea of like it's never said but it is understood by us and by probably everyone except him like it's understood so I think I would like that if if the whole film was like that unfortunately it isn't a scene that I li- that I should like and I do in many ways, is the scene in which he's on a date with this woman. I yeah. like the way it's shot. It's, it's all one shot, and it's, mm-hmm. and it's this conversation. And I think it – I'm sorry. I don't remember if it's very slowly gets – the camera gets closer or very slowly further away. I feel like it gets further away. Uh, yeah, I can't remember either. But I, I do really like that scene. But and God forbid, there's some intentional comedy in that scene with the waiter. Yeah, it was hilarious. Uh, yes, it's ve- <laughs> and yeah. And the rest of the you know I, you know I you and I talk. I've talked almost as long as we've been doing the show about how good drama should have comedy in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and most of the things that I laughed at in this movie, I was not supposed to have laughed at. And the but that and that's the thing, I couldn't even fully embrace that scene because. It's some that dialogue is just so on the nose. Like you find out his, in the way that they mm-hmm. don't address directly his sex addiction, identifying it as sex addiction, they very, very clunkily shoehorn his philosophy of life into mm-hmm. that first date. They don't. Know, these people don't know each other, by the way, really at all. And the idea of him talking about like, what's the point? I don't see the point of marriage, you know, like marriage or just monogamy in general. Like, I don't see the point, you know, and just saying this kind of thing. It's just like, it's almost, it almost felt like they, they felt as though they had an obligation to express that like, well, this might be something that informs his behavior elsewhere. It's like, we don't need that. We, I think I can pick up on it based on (laughs) what I'm, what I'm seeing, but it's so often. So like when it chooses to be really overt, really undercuts when it what it chooses to be subtle about if if it treated the whole now how it deals with some of the sex scenes i think um is is really clunky but like the way it addresses 
his sex addiction, if the whole film felt like that, I think I'd be much more on board with it. But I mean, there's a scene of him like breaking down and crying in the rain. It's like, what film are you making? Yeah. And where is he walking to? That's, I hate that scene because it's like, because here's the thing. And I hate movies where they do that, where someone goes to a picturesque locale to contemplate something. It's like, well, clearly this isn't as, this isn't occupying your mind as much as we're supposed to believe. If you took the time to think of what's the most uh, photogenic place I could go have my breakdown. Yeah. I hate that shit. I mean, compare that to like Punch Drunk Love when Adam Sandler finds out He's on a first date, incidentally, uh-huh. finds out from Emily watching this, Watson, this girl that he really likes, that, that, uh, sh- that they told, his sisters told her something that he'd prefer she not know. And he's like, well, ex- will you excuse me, please? He goes into a restroom, beats the hell out of it, and then just starts crying. Like, the thing about a breakdown, you can't really choose it. Yeah. And somebody who is as controlled by other things as this character is probably would not be like, hold it in, hold it in, hold it in. Okay, now I can break down in this beautiful location. Yeah. Like, it's Ugh. just... I hate that shit. That's what I, I mean when I say operatic. Can I go back to the dinner table scene, sure. actually, real quick? This is a bit of a change of subject, but um, speaking of Dave Chen, he did, before he talked to me, did an actual review of the film uh, on the Slash Filmcast um, with just him and, and friend of the show, Stephen Tobolowsky, mm-hmm. talking about the film. And uh, our good friend Tobo yep. uh, pointed out something in that scene that Dave wrote off as as Stephen um, maybe overanalyzing, but I'd like to get your take on, on because I agreed with Stephen. Okay. Here, um, that I think is actually a great touch, that whenever the... When the waiter comes to the table while Fassbender is talking, he stops talking until the waiter leaves. But when he comes to the table while the woman is talking, she talks with the waiter there because she's more comfortable with Hmm. herself. As someone who stops talking when the waiter is at the table and starts feeling uncomfortable if other people are talking while the waiter is in the table, I very much saw that as well. Are Stephen and I uh, overanalyzing that, or, or did you pick up on it? Hmm. Which one... Which behavior are you saying is right? I don't think either one's... Okay. Well, I think if you're a well-adjusted person, I think... I guess her behavior is more normal. Okay. Maybe that's what I'm saying. Okay. I don't know what's right because I... Uh, I, don't know, I, I feel uncomfortable being waited on in any situation ever. I Yes. And uh, because I feel uncomfortable, I don't want to act as though they are not there. I yeah. want to acknowledge that they are there. Yeah. Um. But yeah, yeah. The, it, when the waiter comes to the table, uh, or waitress, he or she is the guest of honor, as far as I'm concerned. I think. It, <laughs> oh hey, <laughs> yeah. All right. <laughs> um, you know what? I don't think you're overanalyzing it, and I think it speaks to, as I said, the character of Brandon is controlled by other things, but at the same time, he does have a very he does have. I mean, the movie's called Shame. He does have a strong sense of shame, knowing. I shouldn't do this. This is unacceptable socially. So, like, he is. He does. His first instinct is to hide uh, who he is behind something. And so it's like, okay, I know what I'll say to her. The waiter's here. I will now be quiet because I don't. You never know what someone might overhear or whatever. <laughs> He's gone. Time to start talking again. And so I think it, I think it can be indicative of. Of his natural reactions, like I can't control this. Okay, now now it's back to back to the conversation. So I don't think you're overanalyzing, and I think I think 
Well, that, and the fact that one, that she keeps talking and he doesn't, I think that's yeah. I think it was okay. intentional. Well, now we're, it sounds like we're liking this film. Let's talk about more things we didn't like about the film. I want to go back to uh, who walks to a picturesque locale to have a breakdown in the rain. Uh, that you can extend to the whole film. This character does not and cannot exist in real life. There's no way someone gets to be his age with his kind of problem and has the life that he has at the start of the film. Mm -hmm. He as a character exists only within the film because if you start asking questions about like, how did he rise to this position of prominence in his job? If so Mm -hmm. much of his time is spent, uh, with these preoccupations, how did he develop interest in classical music and old cartoons? The things we see him partake in. I mean, I, I, I wonder if the old cartoons are on the TV because you don't have to pay for the rights for them because they're public domain cartoons. Yeah. But that's still uh, you can't I you can't expect me to not think about it to wonder who sits there and watches uh, black and white kids cartoons from the 1920s in their free time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't make any sense that someone uh, whose apparently sole preoccupation in life is his sex addiction that he has this great apartment and takes care of his bills and builds a record collection and and uh, is apparently like second in command at his job. None of that makes any sense to me. And the, the and only, also for okay. one another thing that doesn't happen in the real world, no lounge singer in the world gets paid to go up, sing one fucking song, and then go sit down. Now, admittedly, that song was as long as eight songs. And okay. that's I, I mentioned things that I laughed at that I wasn't supposed to. That was hilarious to me. And you know what? And it's exactly what I was talking about. Camera just stays on her face. I should have liked that. But, like, it slows down the song so much that it barely registers as a song. Uh-huh. And then they, she sings the whole song slowed down. And she's like, wow, we are not going anywhere, are we? <laughs> yeah. This is really something. And that's the thing is, <laughs> Carrie Mulligan's, she's, she's on board to do it and good for her. But part of me is like, I don't think this is necessary. Um but the the one thing that I'd be willing – I will cut the film a certain degree of slack insofar as maybe he is not at rock bottom yet. You know what I mean? Like maybe he is on his way, but he's not there yet. So what That's brings him only, to have a breakdown? Is it after hmm, – is it after the big thing happens? I forget. Yeah, that is after the big thing it's, happens. I guess so that's, I guess that's what. Yeah, yeah that's a good. That's point. what does it. Because um, he, I mean, he is clearly high functioning. It, yeah, you know, it's. I know there's another movie that I about this subject that I know you're not a big fan of, but I think it actually deals with it in a in a better way. Which is uh, we mentioned Paul Schrader, Autofocus. Oh right, yeah. Which uh, is about um, Bob Crane, yeah. played by Greg Kinnear. Yeah, I definitely have some big problems with that film but it's yeah. better than this one well and when it de- and the way it deals with his addiction and and that's why i say that maybe this character is not hit bottom yet because bob crane like he's high functioning for a long time it starts with uh por- with an interest in pornography and then it just goes more and more and and the more famous he gets the easier it is for him to feed this addiction and then after a while the addiction takes over and the fame starts to decline um but you also see that yeah, you're talking me into liking this movie yeah, it's it actually it's I mean, Schrader maybe goes a little too obvious with it and like the first half is shot 
pretty you know pretty uh, steady, and then then we know the decline is happening because he does way too many handheld shots. Like that's an, almost too easy of a thing to do. Yeah. But um, he gets a little Alan Rudolph with it. <laughs> well, let's not go that far. <laughs> um, and so, uh, but yeah, and then you also see that the character has less and less control, right down to he's. There's a scene where he's sitting watching a porn by himself, and then uh, Willem Dafoe's character comes in and sits down on the couch opposite him, and they just start talking. And it seems like they're having the conversation and you think like, wow, how callous that they can just have a how, – how used to this they are that they're just having a conversation while this huge porn is being projected uh, on, on an entire wall of, their, of, of his home. And then – this is going to be uncomfortable to recount. But um, – and then Bob immediately just like – he's like – he gestures to the porn. He's like, this is making me hot. I got to take care of this. And then he like just – reaches into his own pants and gets going and then Willem Dafoe does the same and it impl- and the very fact that you think he's not aware of it while right. he's having the conversation it's like no 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 he's way more aware of this the conversation is just business he has to get out of the way but he's been he was watching this for a reason and he's going to get to it oh incidentally his friends in the room and that doesn't matter yeah. and so like as the film goes on he has less and less control over this and i feel like that has a much better a much better concept of the arc, but I'm willing to, I'm willing to say that Brandon's high functionality is a function of him not having hit rock bottom, but that's still, so I don't necessarily have a problem with that, but it just, it, it doesn't seem to really know what to do with this. It's almost as like they stopped, they said, we're going to make a film about sex addiction and they stopped there. And then they just well, made the film, the thing and is, that was it. I think, I think you're right, but I also think it's almost to me there is an implication. And we're getting back into stuff that I actually liked about the film and didn't like at the same time. There's an, there's an implication that some of his problems stem from something fucked up that happened in the past, either between him and his sister, or that him and his sister were both a part of yeah. there's there's something in that sibling relationship that um you know it's beyond just regular sibling rivalries or whatever there's mm-hmm. uh, that's a that's a really fucked up relationship mm-hmm. and it seems that that's probably the cause of it yeah and it, that is way more interesting to me than the thing the movie spends most of its time on yeah i think the the thing about i think addiction of any kind is that nobody starts something saying i think i really want to get addicted to this chances are it starts off as an escape from something else even if it's just the escape from a mundane life even mm-hmm. if nothing has happened um but then the deeper you get into that the more bad things will probably happen as a result of that and then you want to escape those. And it just turns into this downward spiral. And so, yeah, like when it hints at this shared wound between the two of them, um, I like that. And you de- and it, I think the film, to its credit, does establish that this is – sex is a means to an end. But the fact that he's never dealing with his problem just means he's going to run to it over and over again to the point where he's – and by the, by the end, the scene that, that you don't – uh, a scene that you really don't like, which is uh, you see his reaction during a, a, a sex scene. It 
focuses on his face. Um, and I'm somewhat it – is, it is melodramatic, but it's not as melodramatic as I thought it was going to be based on what you had said. And I was willing to go with it because it's just like, well, he's – this is no longer the escape. It's like the, one of the theories of addiction is you have to do more and more in, for less and less. Mm-hmm. Like you do ha- – you have to do more of it, more drugs or whatever for, a, for less of a high. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think it's – by this point, he's getting to the point where – it is not. It's no longer the escape. He he still does it because that's his compulsion, but it's not the escape that it used to be. And maybe I, whether he consciously realizes it or not, I think in that moment you get some of that. But that, but it's still. I don't know. The film the film had so much potential in actors who were game for anything and a, a shooting style that could have been mm-hmm. like you know, hyper real and just, but I feel like they just didn't know what to do with it. it, There's so much potential. I want to see the sequel where the thing that happens at the end forces, uh, you know, Brandon and his sister to actually talk out loud about whatever the fuck is going on with them. Yeah. And I'm, I'm fine with not. I'm saying fuck a lot because it's the middle of the fucking night. (laughs) I'm getting slap slap happy. I've been swearing a lot as well. I think I'm just hungry. (laughs) Um, but, uh, yeah, I feel like, I feel like we've, we've covered the film again. I, because I am more of a, more of an actor and character person. I think like the characters were created almost through the will of the actors. Right. Um, and so I still like it more than you did but based on what everyone else was saying now let me ask you this and this we might be getting into dangerous territory why do you think it was so it, that movie is so loved uh i mean that yeah I, that is dangerous territory because i will uh, i can oh i i can't help but come across as condescending if i try to say why okay. people like something that i don't like but i mean i mean it is um it is nice to look at a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, people could be responding to that. Do you think it might just be? And I think you know, I, part of the novel, part of the uh, appeal to me was this is not something that you that is made a lot. The idea of sex addiction. You know, most people it's like, hey, sex addict, all right, high five. You know, <laughs> it, like they don't understand. They they don't understand this this. Thing. And so a film that was willing to deal with it seriously, I think, was it was exciting. Um, but then I, I saw I was like, ah, they didn't go as far as they could have. And it's it was dealt with, I think, in a better way in autofocus. So I was disappointed. But do you think the novelty of the content is is what people were responding to? And just you don't see this yeah, very yeah, often. Maybe. And and the and it's the rawness of the execution. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. it is NC seventeen, and which and it doesn't need to be. It doesn't. I see why it, based on standards that I'm not sure I agree with. Yeah. Um, I see why it is, but yeah, it didn't need to be. Yeah. All right. Well, we've taken more than two hours to talk about five films each. In two weeks, we're going to be doing our top ten and honorable mentions and all these other things. We're going to definitely have to put a little bit of a cap on ourselves in those yeah all right um uh a little bit i mean i i still predict that our best of 2011 will be the longest episode we've ever done but 
we 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 can't have it be four hours. <laughs> no, no. We'll we'll try and have let's let's shoot for two and a half. Okay, that won't be the longest we've ever done. I know. Okay, all right. If we shoot for two and a half, we'll be at three. Okay, and we'll be okay. Okay. Um, well, let's just wrap shit up. Uh, you can find us at battleshipretention.com where there's uh, reviews of theatrical releases and home video releases all the time. Coming up this week, coming out on February 10th, you can find uh, my review of Daniel Espinosa's Safe House starring Denzel Washington and Ryan Reynolds. And I think we'll also be uh, reposting um, Scott's reviews of Oren Moverman's Rampart and uh, Belatar's The Turin Horse because those are going to be opening a bit wider this weekend. So uh, if you're interested in seeing any of those, check out our reviews first, which is what you can always do every week at BattleshipRetention.com where you can also listen to the podcast and you can donate to us there as well. Uh, you can email us at David at com or Tyler at com. Follow me, David, on Twitter at twitter.com slash thepretension, and follow Tyler on Twitter at twitter.com slash morelessons, which is the official Twitter of his other podcast, More Than One Lesson, which you can find at morethanonelesson.com or in iTunes, and you can find my other podcast, the weekly television review show, Previously On, at previouslyonshow.com or in iTunes. Okay. Uh, and I have a couple of things as well. Uh, we are still going with the Oscar prediction contest yeah uh it is not uh stuck to the front of the page so if you just search for the um under the categories if you just search for oscar it'll pop it'll pop up uh and just leave your predictions in the comment section uh of that post yeah you'll see what everyone else has been doing exactly yeah and so um and then uh once uh once the winners are announced whoever whoever guessed the most correctly will win a $30 credit in our uh, BP store that includes merchandise as well as uh, uh, our Amazon DVD store. So 30 bucks towards that. Sure, why not? Um, <laughs> also, you get the bragging rights, and that's really why we do anything, right? Sure. Um, and then also, uh, we don't often mention this, but I do want to try and, and, and push it a little bit more. Uh, we do have a Facebook page. Uh, so if you go to facebook.com slash battleship pretension and you like us, uh, I would really appreciate it. I want to try and get those, uh, those numbers up and there are regular, uh, updates to that as far as episodes and blogs and mm. that sort of thing. So, and you know, I actually post all of our website updates and new episodes on my Google plus page. I know plenty of listeners have found me on Google plus. I'm yeah. still using it every day. Uh, but, uh, I have not signed up for Google plus. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, if you are on Google Plus, uh, there's no Battleship Pretension page, but there is me, David Bax, uh, and you can find out about all the stuff that's going up on the web- website there. So, all right. Uh, thanks everybody for bearing with us through this episode. Uh, I have to assume we're going to get a series of uh, emails and comments because, <laughs> yeah, uh, we really set our up set ourselves up for something uh, something <laughs> bad here. This is a bad idea. But, uh, yeah, thanks, everybody, for listening, and we'll get you next time. Bye. Bye.